Mr. Speaker, from his various volunteer roles here on stage, guitar, drums, even singing, and today we get to add bringing the message to that. So uh, our speaker today is John McClellan. John is a philosophy professor at Carson Newman, and fun fact, he actually taught me philosophy when I was a young student at the University of Tennessee. So, uh, but most importantly, um, John is a friend. Uh, I've been edified by John's teaching, uh, by his boldness, and by his humility. So without wasting any more time, here's John McClellan. So. We got sound? All right. I don't believe we're going to have uh, text on the screen, uh, PowerPoint slides that I was going to show you. But that's all right. My talk is on anxiety today, today, and this is good practice for me. When things don't go according to plan, it's all right. Stay calm. See what happens. So that's what we're going to do. I was going to start, because I sort of felt obligated to, being a philosophy professor, I was going to start with a thought-provoking quote from an ancient philosopher. So just imagine one of those on the screen. Now, I was going to ask you to discuss it a moment. But that's all right. I'm not really here as a philosophy professor today anyways. You know, I'm just here today as a part of this church family who uh, has a story to share. I had hoped to do more than just share my own story today, there's a lot I want to say about anxiety, about worry. There's a lot I wanted to say from the scriptures. I wanted to show you guys statistics about <laughs> mental health issues, particularly among young people today. I had a lot that I wanted to say, and I still want to say, and then it became clear in the recent days that there was just not time for that, and so all I'm going to do today, and this is weird for me, is talk about myself the whole time. Pretty much, that's not what I do, but that's what I'm going to do today. I've had issues with anxiety most of my life, but I want you to know here up front that in 2021, I experienced a, a mental health crisis with severe anxiety and insomnia. Uh, having dealt with anxiety, as I said, most of my life, nothing had ever come close to this. It was extreme. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you uh, how, how extreme it was in a nutshell, and then I'll give you some details about it later on. And before that, I want to talk about my childhood, experiences with anxiety, and so on. But just so you know that this was bad, uh, at a point in 2021, I checked myself in to a, a place that's called a crisis stabilization unit, a three-night stay. This is not a resort, not a three-night stay at a luxurious, relaxing place, but it was a place that I was told I could get access to a psychiatrist, which was something that we could not do, try as we might. We, my wife, and I say, wait, it's me and my wife. We were desperate to get me help. Uh, so that's, that gives you an idea of, of the situation that I was in. And I'll give you plenty of details about that here in a bit. But I wanted you to know up front that, you know, this was bad. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have two objectives in mind in telling you the story and talking about myself today. I hope God has other objectives in mind. But the two that I have in mind, number one... I do hope that in sharing this story or parts of my story that some of you who struggle with mental health or other chaotic situations in life, I hope you will be encouraged by my story somehow uh, because as bad as it was, as broken uh, of a person as I was, you know, I never thought I'd be checking myself into a facility to get to a psychiatrist. Uh, as bad as that was, I do believe God was faithful to me, and in so many ways, he earned my trust even more than before in my life, uh, and I hope that knowing that a person went through something desperate, 
and has now in many, so many ways been restored. I hope that will be encouraging to some of you. Now, I'm not perfect. I still have struggles, but I'm telling you the truth. The last, I don't know, 18 months or so have been really some of the fullest months of life that I've ever experienced. It's, it's really been tremendous. So I hope that will encourage some of you. That's objective one. Objective two, I'm doing this for myself uh, because one of the things I've been working on is loosening up, living freer. Uh, and that involves acting, doing things that I might otherwise be uncomfortable doing or even in spite of discomfort, to feel nervous, to feel inadequate, and just act anyways and see what happens. So this is another chance for me to do that. All right, here's my story. Now I want you to imagine on the screen there are pictures of me, adorable pictures as a child. Is that going to happen? There was some hope that we might get the photographs at least. It's fine if we don't. Okay, I'm going to assume that we don't. Were they cute pictures? I have some family here, my wife and my, my cousin. My cousin's wife saw some of those, and, and they do attest to the fact that they were cute. Uh, so what I'm about to do is just give you a little bit of, of history about me uh, specific to anxiety. I do want to say this is not how I view my entire life through the lens of anxiety. I've had a wonderful life. I was in a very loving home. I had a wonderful church that I grew up in. Uh, I'm only focusing on this today because that's the point of my talk. It is an important um, part of my life, my struggles with anxiety, but I don't want you to think that because I'm talking about sort of negatives about my life that that's what I see my life as completely far from it. But I have a purpose today, and that's why I'm talking about it. So here we go. As a child, I experienced frequent feelings of nervousness in my body. And I did not realize that that is not how uh, a typical child would feel. Everybody gets nervous from time to time, but not every child feels sick on their stomach almost every evening. Even when there was nothing specific that I was nervous about, I would feel this sense of, I don't know if you want to call it dread, it's just this ominous, uneasy feeling, and that would physically affect me in my stomach in particular, I just was uneasy often as a child. And I just kind of assumed that's the way things were. But that's not at all how things have to be. I was also a worrier and what the psychologists call a catastrophizer. When I say I was that, that doesn't mean I haven't been that since. I have. But as a child, I worried a good bit and I catastrophized. That means that I would uh, often think of the worst possible scenarios and I would fixate on them, and I would drastically overestimate their likelihood. Now, I want to give you an example of this, and I think it's hilarious. Feel free to laugh. It didn't feel funny at the time, and it is super weird, but I'm, I'm going to be willing to embarrass myself today, okay? As a child, I remember vividly being home sick from school one day with a fever, laying on the couch, and the thought occurred to me, I bet it's AIDS. <laughs> I think this is it for me. Yeah, growing up in the 80s, 90s, there's a lot of talk of AIDS, and I had become convinced that in all likelihood, somehow I had contracted HIV and might well soon die of AIDS. Now, that's an unlikely outcome for someone with my who's it, you know, sexual history as an a eight or ten-year-old child, and so on. Sorry, I, I can't stop myself sometimes. I, I like to laugh. All right, that was not in the notes. Uh, that was an unlikely outcome given my situation, let's say. Uh, but still, in my mind, it seemed very real, and it felt very real, and it was terrifying. And that's just one example I could give you tons throughout my life where I have those thoughts that are just catastrophic, and I have to just deal with that. As a kid, I didn't know how. Uh, another thing about me as a child, I was easily overwhelmed by very solvable problems. I brought a prop today. So the tech problems could not stop me from showing you this vivid prop. Can you guys see this? 
Muppet Babies puzzle. Very big pieces. Very easy puzzle, but around preschool age or kindergarten, uh, this is still age appropriate. It says two to four. This was easy, solvable. But what I like to do, and apparently my mom says that I did this uh, uh, more than once, I like to take all my puzzles that I had like this. I had several, for whatever reason. I like to dump all the pieces out together in the floor and mix them up, make it harder, more challenging. But then I would get completely overwhelmed. I could not sort them out. I could not put them out to be, put them back together. Now I say I could not. I believe I had the ability, if I could have stayed calm and step by step, sorted those pieces out and put them in their place, I could have brought order to the chaos there, but for whatever reason, I would feel wholly incapable in that moment. And it just looked like a big mess to me that I had no ability to sort out. And that tendency has popped up in my life over and over. Getting overwhelmed by a solvable problem that if I could just learn to take it step by step, I could solve. Sometimes it just doesn't work that way for me. Uh, one more tendency as a child I want to mention. Uh, I was passive. I lacked confidence, even in things that I was good at. So I had a picture of me with a basketball. I was a pretty skilled basketball player as a child because I worked at it. I loved it. I practiced a lot. I worked on fundamentals. I would go up and down my dead-end street, like just dribbling between my legs like this with my head up. Like I was skilled, man. I was really good. But guess what happened when it came time to play basketball in a game? I was literally passive, passing the ball. I could drive. I mean, I had handles left and right. I proved it against my older neighbor, my older brother in the backyard. But in game time situations, I lost confidence and I was passive. That has been a metaphor for me in in working with my counselor. So many situations in my life, I have abilities but I don't want to go for it. And I rob myself of the joy of living my life, being what I can be, doing what I can do. So those are just some of the counterproductive psychological tendencies that I had even as a child. Now, skipping forward, um, by high school, things shifted some for me. Uh, I, I don't know, something about getting my driver's license... Uh, just growing up time, I don't know, I became more confident in a lot of ways. I picked up a guitar. I started leading worship at church. I quickly started writing songs even and playing and singing songs in front of uh, my church, not a small church, uh, original songs as a teenager. And people would say that, you know, they found those songs moving and, and, and helpful to them. Uh, I started reading scripture seriously, taking my faith more seriously. I got into Christian apologetics. That's when I, for example, fell uh, in love with the writings of C.S. Lewis. And I started teaching lessons in my youth group uh, about what I was learning. You know, just putting myself out there, getting some things done. That continued into into my college years. In college, I became... Uh, physically empowered. I had graduated high school, a scrawny, 130-pound young man at this height. I had been undersized my whole life, and I decided in college I was going to do something about that, and I got into lifting weights, found I really loved it. It's simple. It just You just lift over and over, and you just have to put in a lot of effort, and it turns out I could do that, and I loved it. I got so much stronger. That was a huge confidence boost for me. In that same time period in college, I also found confidence in my intellectual abilities. I didn't take school seriously through high school and my first couple semesters of college even, but something started to shift in me. I got interested, and I invested myself in it. I took harder classes than I needed to take, upper-level philosophy classes before I even knew I wanted to major in it. I was writing papers, reading dense readings, and writing critiques of philosophical arguments, and my professor's would be impressed, and they would give me critical feedback and force me to improve my arguments, and I would take those challenges on. I don't know where all that was coming from, but, man, I was living my life to a large extent. I got in a Christian rock and roll band. You know, I fell in love. So there were going to be some good pictures of Laura and I um, and the time that we were dating in college. So 
a good stretch of my life where although I still battled with some of those things I told you about from childhood, they were not my everyday experience anymore. But shortly thereafter, that began, began to shift back, and that's where we're heading here in a moment. Next in my life was graduate school, where on the plus side, I discovered my love of teaching college students. I do think it was one prized pupil in particular that made such a difference that inspired me so much, that John Mixon fella that you saw a little bit ago, the genius of his writing assignments and to know that I had a hand in bringing that out of you, it just made me want to teach that much more. But, you know, jokes aside, I, I, as nervous as I could get, like my first few classes getting in front of students, I found it kind of came natural to me and I was good at it and it was uh, kind of exhilarating. So things seemed like they were going pretty well. But then they did begin to shift in those years in graduate school. Although I loved teaching, I still had a lot I had to do to meet my own requirements in graduate school classes, writing papers, presenting at conferences, and I was taking it so seriously. I had finally gotten really conscientious about something, and my obsessiveness kind of kicked in and began to get the best of me. When you take something serious and you're obsessive, it can be a bad combo sometimes. I found myself feeling like that child again in my body on a regular basis not able to relax anymore like I could in high school and college I was that kid again who couldn't relax this time there was an additional symptom of irritability and uh, that was new as nervous as I was as a child I was not an irritable child but I became an irritable young adult Laura and I, by this time, were very serious. We may have even been engaged at this point in our lives. And uh, it was clear that this was affecting her very negatively. Guys, it's hard to be in a close relationship with someone who is on edge, who at the slightest little obstacle or struggle just can't seem to deal, just gets all bent out of shape. That's not good for relationships. And seeing that, I think, is what motivated me to get some help. So I started counseling. I had a wonderful counselor. I wish I could tell you more about her. I wish I had time to tell you about, uh, more about a lot of this stuff. But uh, the short of it is she specialized in, a, in an approach to counseling that's pretty common. It's called cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, if you want to Google it. Uh, the basic idea is that the, the counselor will try to intervene with the client at the level of the client's thought patterns and thought processes. There's a lot that goes on psychologically in a person, including emotions and so on. But the idea behind CBT is if you can interrupt, interrupt thoughts and correct thoughts, you can affect all that other emotional stuff too. And she was quite good at it. So I want to give you just one example of what she would do to help me. That catastrophic thinking, remember that I've got AIDS thinking as a child. <laughs> I still did that now during these years in graduate school. And she would, not about AIDS, but she would have me come in and express <laughs> one of the things that I was worried about that day. And um, she would say, what's the worst that can happen? What's that scenario that you're playing out in your mind? And I would say it out loud. And sometimes it would be embarrassing to say it out loud because it's just so extreme, so unlikely. Other times it wasn't that unlikely. It was like a legit possibility this could happen. You know, like a committee doesn't pass this paper and I end up not getting to stay in graduate school. You know, those are possibilities, I guess. But she'd have me say them out loud and then she'd have me be rational. What's the possibility, really, if I'm getting honest with myself, that that bad thing's going to happen? And typically I would realize it's not very likely but she would also have me do this. She'd say, and if it did happen, what would that be like? Not what do you, if you let yourself think emotionally, think it would be like. What do you rationally think that would be like? And in particular, do you think you would be able to cope with it? And often I had to admit, you know what, even if that bad thing happened that I was so worried about did happen, I think I could deal with it. And that helped. So just as an example, that's the kind of progress you can make 
by going to counseling, I highly recommend it if you think you would benefit. Okay, so got married, Laura and I got married. Things were going pretty well in my life at that point. That anxiety had flared back up, but I had now gotten some tools to deal with it, and that was good. I was okay with that. And then something pretty dramatic happened. I know I told you I'm going to talk about a recent mental health crisis. Forgive me for all this backstory. We're still getting there. But this is something else dramatic that happened. Uh, I got cancer. So this was in the second year of our marriage. Uh, I had a picture up here of me with my bald head. The first time I went bald, this is time number two in progress. But uh, a completely bald head, if you can imagine. Uh, This was a shock. I had lymphoma. The first few days when this giant tumor in my chest was discovered and we didn't know what it was, was uh, terrifying. I won't say I managed my anxiety very well at all those few days. I did not. But after a few days, the biopsy results came back and we got the diagnosis of lymphoma, a treatable form of lymphoma. I got an oncologist assigned to me and he's like, you know, 85 to 90 percent chance of survivability. You could look at that as a 10 to 15 percent chance of death. But again, there were a few days there where we didn't know what this was. And there was talk of maybe having to lay my chest open and do this life-threatening. 85, 90 percent chance of survival was sounding pretty good. You know, and I had been working with my counselor on all this positive thinking, all these tools. And believe it or not, I got a grip pretty quickly. And I was ready. I was like, okay, let's do this thing. 85, 90 percent chance it's going to be hard, but I think I can cope with this. I think I can do this. And it was rough, you know, physically rough. It was aggressive chemotherapy because the cancer was so treatable. And my doctor said because I was so young and otherwise healthy at the time, he's like, we're going to get this thing hard. We're going to vaporize it. And that's what we did. It was rough. I'm not going to lie to you. But I really say that just so I can emphasize this next point. As rough as that was, and I, I mean, I'm going to say this with no hesitation, the mental health crisis that I went through in 2021 was so much worse. So much worse. And I felt like I needed to say that just in case you know of people who are dealing with mental health struggles that are really affecting their quality of lives, affecting what they can do, and so on affecting their personalities. I need you to know how hard that can be. I lived through cancer, lymphoma, aggressive chemotherapy, and I'm telling you, in my case, the difficulties of that did not compare to the difficulties of the mental health crisis that I went through in 2021. And we're almost to that story. After cancer, there were 10 years, in my notes it says 10 years of awesome. (laughs) just such a fortunate time in my life. Returned to health. I got a job at Carson Newman. Practically fell in my lap. I loved my job. So many rich interactions with students. So much stimulating discussion. Uh, Philosophy majors, for example, are like the cream of the crop. And I get to work with them every day. Let me just name a few philosophy majors that have come through Providence over the years. A couple before I was here that I think some of you will remember. Do you remember Alex Carver? Anybody? Or Bob Bishop that used to play the drums for you guys. And there was this pretty decent philosophy major named Brendan Dunn. He was all right. Yeah, he's sitting in the back. He's the one up here singing today. I mean, these are wonderful young people, and I get to work with them every day. Such a fun job. I couldn't believe I got paid to do this. I could still be obsessive. I could still lack confidence from time to time, but my life was fun. It was good, and it was comfortable. And then that changed for me. So here we go. 2021, what happened to me? I don't know what all details I'm going to get out here, but I encourage anyone who's interested to hear more or to ask questions about this. Um, I'd like to be an open book for you. If you th- if you'd like to talk to me, I'm happy to do that. But here we go. I'll tell you some about this. 
the biggest trigger for me of this mental health crisis was the COVID pandemic, which was hard on a lot of people in a lot of ways. It was hard on me in a, a particular way. At first, I was afraid of the virus like a lot of people were. Remember, I'm the kid who's afraid of AIDS, despite being a kid who doesn't engage in any behaviors that would make me remotely at risk for AIDS. Uh, so at first, you know, my tendency is to be afraid of the virus itself. But rather quickly, I started using the tools I have, trying to be rational, put risks in perspective, think of trade-offs, cost-benefit analysis, excuse me, and so on. And I came to the conclusion that, frankly, all of, most of the mitigations that were being so confidently pushed on us, I thought it was a bad deal. It was a bad idea overall. Bad cost-benefit analysis. For example, I was worried about mental health. I was thinking more about my students, not myself, because things have been so good for me. But there are a number of things I expected to happen from all of the isolation, all of the economic slowdown, just all of the weirdness of life that was chosen at that time in response to the virus. Now, I don't expect anyone to share my conclusion. We have different views about what should have been done. It was a difficult situation. But I do just need you to know that I had a different conclusion from what you might call the mainstream narrative. And yet I kept that view to myself so much. So, for example, at work where a lot of colleagues didn't see things the way I did, maybe they were arguing for more, keeping the students apart at work, more having them covering their faces. I wanted less, but I didn't say so. And I think I should have, not just because it's important in academia for people who disagree to express their disagreement. I certainly believe that, but it would have been good for me to express myself. I didn't. I, I kept all that bottled up. So not only was it just a weird time for all of us to be alive, I was living that passive, unconfident life again. Not, not acting. It was bad for me. It ate at me. In January 2021, my church, uh, the church that Laura and I were going to, we really liked, it decided it was going to go fully remote a second time for a while, and I, at that time I had become uh, very uncomfortable in my own skin. I was struggling. Uh, each day I would wake up with this just tension and nervousness, really more extreme than I was used to ever in my life, and I just decided, man, this, this is not going to work for me. I need to be in a church. I need to be with people, believers around me, singing I need that, so Laura and I ended up here one Sunday, and um, the plan was for it to be temporary, but, but we've, uh, we've stayed, and we're going to stay. All right. There were a lot of warning signs I missed that this was getting bad. You wake up every day feeling extreme tension in your body and nervousness, that's not a good sign, for example. I should have made a counseling appointment. Then I didn't. I don't know what I was thinking. But longer story, somewhat shorter, after 500 days of weirdness with the COVID stuff, the fall 2021 semester looked like it was going to be pretty normal. And I will say Carson Newman, in my opinion, did a good job. We had in-class learning as early as fall 2020. There was just a lot of, you know, splitting classes up so you didn't have many people in the room and everybody having their faces covered and all that stuff. But by fall 2021, it looked like it was finally going to be like normal classroom experience again. And although I, was, I had been struggling, I was really excited about that. But then just a few days into the semester, that started to shift. I think there must have been like more prevalence of the virus or something. And people, my students started covering up their faces more again. And there just was that sense of, oh, gosh, life is still so weird and hard. And then my lovely wife got sick, and so I had to do the, the two-week quarantine. This was right the earliest semester. 
uh, move my classes online. And for whatever reason, that just seemed to kind of be the last draw for me. Uh, remember the kid that has the puzzle pieces on the floor? There's ways to put that together if you can be logical and sort it out. There was a way to move my class online again, even though it had just started. Uh, I could have handled that if I were in a, in a rational place, but by that point I was not. And I didn't sleep at all that night. In fact, instead of sleeping, I was pacing nervously all through my house. I'd never done that before. Feeling some kind of anguish. And I knew it was irrational. And I'd do my things I had learned. It wasn't working. Happened again the next night. And the next night. Talking very, very little sleep. Very little sleep. It was extreme. What was happening to me? I couldn't get a grip. Ironically, given my views on trying to put that virus into perspective, by the time Laura and then me a few days into this insomnia, of course, I'm, I get it, uh, I couldn't get any rational perspective. So I'm like checking her oxygen levels religiously. Like I was, I was toast, man. I was, I was pretty much gone, so to speak. Fully conscious, but not myself. I didn't sleep virtually at all for two weeks there while I had excruciating, relentless anxiety, attacks of anxiety through the night, pacing, pacing, pacing. I remember walking through my neighborhood at four in the morning like a nervous wreck. It got to where my legs were so weak because I had walked constantly for two weeks. My appetite was gone. My body, in other words, was was really struggling from all of that inner turmoil. Laura had a pretty bad case of it, so she was sick. And my mom came to help because I was in such a bad place. My colleagues at work came to my aid to cover my classes. This was getting weird, guys. I was not working. I couldn't complete my normal task. In fact, any task I did complete felt like the hardest thing in the world. I'm talking letting the dogs out. I'm talking loading the dishwasher. I had to force myself to do it like a Herculean task. In some ways it was. Life just got so weird and so hard. I didn't know this sort of thing could happen to me. And I didn't know how to get out of it. As I said, my mom came to visit. I remember her helping me make calls, trying to, to get a psychiatrist to see me because, as, as I said, I just was not sleeping. and it, it was hard to see how I would survive this if I didn't get some sleep soon. But nobody was there to help. You could get a psychiatrist appointment four months out. My primary care doctor uh, would call in medications for me. Nobody would see me in person because I at that point was COVID positive. So you just have to stay home and beg people on the phone to help you, I guess. It was rough. I was told by some folks on some kind of crisis hotline that if I went to the UT emergency room, I could maybe see a psychiatrist that was there. Man, I'm just noticing. It's weird talking about it. How are we doing? I've been talking a long time. Okay, I don't do this in class. My students will tell you I talk at most 10-minute stretches, and then we have a discussion activity, a problem to solve, something like that. This is different, but appreciate you sticking with me. Uh, I remember my mom driving me to the UT emergency department, and I'm, I've seen the movies. I'm thinking, oh, God, I'm going to get, like, admitted to an institution or something. What's going to happen to me? But I was desperate. I mean, I was so desperate. What ended up happening, I did get to see a psychiatrist. We talked for about five minutes, if I recall. He injected me with something, I don't know what, and sent me home. And I did, because of whatever that was, sleep a few hours that afternoon. But that was it. All we went through to get help, being willing to take that risk, what felt like a big risk to me at the time, that was all the help I got. So you can imagine 
how hopeless this was beginning to seem for me. What else can you do? I'm trying as best I can to get help. I'm hanging in as best I can. No end in sight, no help in sight. After Laura started feeling better, my mom left. My dad had come for a little while. They, they left. And Laura, bless her heart, she was trying so hard. She was trying so hard to help me. But nothing seemed to work. Okay. Then we got a call that uh, I could go to that crisis stabilization unit that I mentioned to you earlier. Stay three nights. This would be my chance to see a psychiatrist to hopefully get on some kind of drug that was going to put me to sleep, uh, to help me sleep, to maybe get me on a path. The idea is there are counselors there that can talk with you and, and deal with you. Uh, and you can see a psychiatrist once a day while you're there. And I didn't want to go there. Never imagined myself going someplace like that. But I had been praying for help, begging for help. And so I felt could not could not turn that down. So I went. Now imagine doing something like that. I, mean, I never imagined I would be doing that. My wife driving me to this place. What the heck's going to happen to me there? I don't know. It's weird. I mean, it's so weird. But I went. I was determined to see that psychiatrist because in my mind that was the only way out at this point. Long story short, that did not end up being the answer for me. As far as medication goes, I don't want to give any advice. I'll say I have had help with anxiety medication in the past. Uh, This time around, it ended up... um, working better for me to not be on any medication in the end. And I haven't been for a while, but again, no advice uh, there. As bad as that was in that facility, because it was not a restful, relaxing place by any means, it, it turns out that's more a place for like if you're suicidal and you need that kind of monitoring, which thankfully I was not suicidal. I needed to go to sleep and it just wasn't at all restful and relaxing. But I saw that psychiatrist. He tried to help me as best he could. And after three days, I was back home. There's so much stories I'd like to tell you about my stay there, things I saw in the suffering of others. Man, there's so much there. I'm just move right along here. When I got home, uh, the hope was, you know, adjust to these new medications I was be given and I had been given and that was going to get me on a more fruitful path. So I just had to wait, just had to hang in there and wait. You know, I'm still not working. That was so weird for me, having loved my job so much to not be working. I just, what has come of me? And what do I do about it? I had no idea. During that time, I became agoraphobic, meaning I didn't want to leave my house. I remember walking through my basement one day and seeing things in the house that I had repaired, things that I had built, and thinking, how in the world did I ever do any of that stuff? Because at this point, I had been reduced to just a shell of myself. I couldn't complete normal tasks, not to mention my job. Am I going to lose my job soon? Like, how much longer can you just not work? How much longer will your friends just cover your classes for you? I had to call my boss at university. The provost is kind of the boss of the faculty, and I called him. And I just was honest about what was happening with me. And, man, I didn't expect this, but he, uh, he had such a Christ-centered gracious response told me that that of course in Newman they want to they want to support their faculty and take care of someone who's suffering like I was and so they would hold my job for me that's very fortunate most people in a mess like I was in would not have that but still I wanted to get back to work but I mean I was toast I, I, I still not sleeping how do you work at a job where the whole job is mental focus? 
I couldn't do it. I got to see a counselor at Wellsprings in Morristown who encouraged me to celebrate every little accomplishment. And I felt so childish doing that. I would write a list of accomplishments for the day. Stood up. No, it wasn't quite that bad, but it was like, ate my breakfast. <laughs> Loaded the dishwasher. That kind of stuff, man. You know, I'm thinking, is this life for me now? Is this what I'm going to be? I'm going to skip a lot of stuff here. There were uh, physical issues I was having. I have an existing neurological condition. It's likely, um, my doctor's best guess, damage from my chemotherapy showing up in my nerves. But at this time, I was having all kinds of symptoms. I mean, burnings going through my body. Just, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Lots of um, heart-related symptoms. I got MRIs and heart tests, and some stuff was found. And so there was this whole ordeal. Turns out I'm, I'm okay physically. I think a lot of that was the... Physical effects of all that inner turmoil. Because there was so much turmoil. Can I remind you, please, if this seems weird, this was so much harder than chemotherapy. So much harder. I'm going to skip. At some point, those persistent, severe feelings of anxiety, tension, terror, fear, whatever you want to call it, began to subside. And it was as if I was in some way coming to terms with it. I felt like I was just submitting. Just not giving up, so to speak, but in a way giving, giving in to something. I like to think now someone. I was giving in to someone. Please understand, there's a lot of stuff I want to say theologically, but I I said I'm just talking about myself today. There were many nights now at this point where I would sleep for the first two or three hours, and then I would wake up, lay in bed the rest of the night, so five, six hours, just lay there. But now I was calm. It was weird. I'd lay there for five hours straight, but calm. As that was happening, I realized, okay, I think i got to try to force the issue with my job. I was calm, but I was still mentally so fatigued from not rest and not really sleeping. Uh, I remember uh, I was going to go back to teach a class. My colleague that was covering that class made arrangements for me to come back in, teach a class. Let's just see how this goes. Let's see if I can carry on a train of thought. I remember making a handout for that class, a topic I have taught So many times, it's called Molinism, it's awesome, it's a model of reconciling divine um, foreknowledge and providence with human freedom, love to talk with you about it sometime. Uh, I've talked about it many times, but this time, it took me hours to make like a simple bulleted handout, because man, I just, it was so hard to have a decent train of thought. But I did it, and I went and taught it. It was so good to be with my students again. There were lots of things starting to happen like that, things I was doing, putting myself out there. In other words, I was on a road to recovery. So much I want to say, so much I want to explain, so much I want to maybe at some point teach. But uh, I'm just going to do one thing here. Where did I put my Bible? It's right there under my paper. This happens to me teaching all the time. Students help me. I'm like, where's the marker? Where's the eraser? They help me out a lot. Uh, I think one major turning point, this was going to be on the screen for you, the scripture from Philippians 4, if you want to get your Bibles out. It's Philippians 4. Again, at this point, I was calm at night, but still not able to sleep. And so one night I decided, 
uh, I, I'll try something new. Like maybe just being in this room where I've had all this difficulty night after night. Maybe just go try to sleep in another room. So I went down in my basement one night. And I thought I'll just pick a, a, one of Paul's epistles short enough to read. I'll read it. And I'll you know, make the couch down there comfortable. And I'll turn off the lamp and I'll see if I can sleep. Turns out I did sleep pretty well that night, but what I want to say here in closing is um, how I think God showed up for me that night through Philippians. And he was showing up in a lot of ways, but I just want to share with you. Philippians often read for anxiety, so if you look at verse 4, you'll see a passage that you might recognize Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Man, I'd, I'd like to talk about that. <laughs> I won't. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, you've heard that part. And if you've dealt with anxiety, come on, you know, this, that's all easier said than done. Don't be anxious about anything. Okay. But we aren't supposed to be. The goal is not to be anxious about anything. That is the goal. But easier said than done. Well, what struck me like... A ton of bricks. Is that even a saying? I don't know. Was verse 12. I'm going to back up to verse 11. I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. Remember Paul's writing this from prison. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Here you go. I know how to be brought low. I can feel that still. I knew how to be brought low. I never knew I could be so low. Look at, look at me. I'm low. But I do think I had kind of learned how to be brought low. Remember, at this point, I'm calm. For the most part, I don't want to exaggerate. Then he says, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret. Here's the secret, according to Paul. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, good circumstances, bad circumstances, grueling challenges or comfort like I had been experiencing those 10 years of awesome before this happened. There's a secret to facing all of that. And here's the verse you've all heard before. What's the secret? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Guys, there's so much I'd like to say about this passage. I guess I'll just say one thing. A Christian who has a renewed mind, like Paul talks about elsewhere, and again, that is the goal, to have our minds renewed, to be like the mind of Christ. That's the goal. Someone who has reached that goal, like I think Paul had largely, there's a steadiness to that person. They deal with good fortune the same way they deal with misfortune. All of life has to be lived in Christ's strength. Maybe this is a lesson you guys all understood. That verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, my mind always went to like, I can take on challenges and if I do them in Christ's strength and that's part of the truth but the part that I was so convicted about last night is like yeah John but what about all those years of good fortune and good circumstances and comfortable life did you do those in Christ's strength the answer is no I did not and so what I want is a renewed mind where whatever comes I'm going to live in Christ's strength now we are 10 minutes to, till noon, so I think what I'll do, ask the band to come up, and depend on how long your songs are, Brendan, you might want to choose your hit out of the two. <laughs> and I'll just say a prayer for us.
as they come up, I appreciate you all listening. Uh, I, I do feel like I've talked an awful lot, um, but I'm willing to talk more to any of you who, who think it might be helpful or who are just interested. Um, and again, maybe one day I can come back and, and make some theological points that are relevant to this sort of thing, talk about more of my recovery process and so on. But I very much appreciate your patience and your listening ear today. Let's pray. Father, you are our Father. You love us better than any earthly father ever has, ever could. And you are mighty. You hold the universe in your hand. We can trust you. Even when it's hard to feel that, to know that it is, I believe today, that is the truth, that we can trust you. Father, please continue working in my life to have my mind renewed, to share more in the mind of Christ, to abide in you and have you abide in me so that whatever circumstances I face, I approach them in your strength. Father, I pray for those here today who are struggling be it anxiety, be it depression, whatever else people are going through that is hard. Father, be with those people. I wish you would just show up in a dramatic way for them today. But it seems that's not always how you work. But God, I pray that you would. I at least pray for them that you will give them the grace to deal with another day with their struggles and to learn to trust you more. Father, we all need your help. We may not have what, we may not all have what psychologists consider mental illness, but our, all of our minds need to be renewed. We have people here who have uh, lazy minds, gullible minds, people who have haughty, prideful minds, people who have their minds set on worldly pursuits and possessions. And oh, there's just so much we do to get so mixed up. And we know that you don't want that for us. You want a renewed inner life, living out the Spirit, your Holy Spirit, in our lives each day. Father, please bring that to the people of Providence. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you.